like to take just a little bit of time this morning and view something that God has taken as the most, one might say, important thing to him. Most important thing to him. A long time ago, when I was in, I think it was first grade, I memorized a verse. The Lord will give strength unto his people. He will bless his people with peace. And all these years later, despite many attempts of different styles of verse memorization, I still am very, very bad at it. I came out of a grammar school that was uh, private Christian, and they weekly you were supposed to memorize a verse as a part of your studies. And I can't remember a single other one. As a matter of fact, I don't think I actually succeeded at doing a single other one throughout the entirety of those first six years of school for me. But that verse to me is very special uh, because for a very long time I didn't count myself as one of God's people. A long time after that. And I had much time that I had no peace. And I had many times and periods where I didn't have strength. And I'll say that to make it about me. We should all not study scriptures only to see ourselves. This book isn't a number of pages of mirrors. It is God's word. It teaches us about him. And because we are made by him and because we are his people, we see many things that teach us about ourselves. But the point of God's word is to see him. And what I find most amazing about that verse is the whole beginning of that psalm. It's Psalm 29, as I said. The first 10 verses are all about one singular subject. And I'm embarrassed to say that despite reading it many times since, I had never noticed what it was about. And we'll get back to it in a little while. But that one verse is the only verse really about us and God's people and the way God would deal with his people. And the rest of it was all about a different subject. And that different subject was this. In John chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus goes from teaching to suddenly praying to God in one single verse, showing how that he was constantly in prayer everywhere he went, sometimes privately for hours with God in prayer, but in the middle of conversations, it wasn't strange to him to suddenly be outwardly praying. And that example is one we should pay attention to, but what I'd like to really concentrate on this morning is that there was an answer from heaven. It says in John 12, verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there, came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. One of the things I'm always surprised about every time I open a Bible, and a few versions have corrected this and begun to to deal with it, but if we want to put Jesus' words in red, they probably should do something special when the Father has spoken directly from heaven. The trouble is that they don't always know whether it's an angel who had spoken in God's uh, place or whether God spoke from heaven. But this time, this time there was a voice that came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, this is a strange and mysterious saying, and it's one that can both be so shallow that the children can dip their feet into, but it also can get so deep that the strongest swimmers among us of God's word can easily drown in the depth of it. So I don't want to go too far with it, but I would like to illustrate for you this morning the importance of keeping your eye on the things that God finds most important and seeing how far we are from those things, but then recognizing that you are referred to in the past tense as glorified. So God's glory is something that should be very important to you because it's very important to God. It's paramount. Jesus is praying for it here and the Father answers back in two separate ways that he both has glorified it and will glorify it, saying both that it is vital to him that you see his glory and how glorious he is and in his name in particular. 
But I'd like to first jump back into the story here. See, when is he saying this? Why does he say that he has glorified it and he will glorify it? Well, this is right after the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, I've said here before that it's an amazing thing that God, when he reveals that Jesus is the son of God, he could have done it any way he so desired. If he wanted it to be seen as it will be seen one day, as lightning that goes from the east to the west. If he wanted to show him by having him suddenly make himself a thousand feet tall. If he wanted to make himself shine brighter than the sun, all these things he could have done. But he chose to reveal himself by healing the broken. By preaching the gospel. By setting the prisoner free. Because God, even when he does good things, chooses to do it by sharing his loving kindness upon us. And indeed, upon all mankind, because he showed even when he healed the ten lepers, that ten went away, only one came back with a heart thankful to God, such that God even would do good things unto sinners. As it says in the scripture that he does good to the just and unto the unjust, because he is God. Because he continues to be God to this very day, when he reveals his goodness, he does it in ways that are beneficial to others. But this particular miracle was different. The raising of Lazarus, which I've spoken on here a few times, was different because a few things had happened in the lead-up. One was that they told Jesus it was going to happen. They told Jesus, hey, uh, he's sick, and we're really worried about him. And Jesus' answer was this, and, and see if you can pick up something that's a vital clue to what the Father had answered from heaven. Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, and it says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So you hear this mystery that God says. He says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now at this point, Jesus has already said a number of very strange and mysterious things. He says he came from heaven, which itself would be mind-boggling. No one on earth has ever come from heaven. We've all come from our mothers, essentially, and follow that back far enough, and we all came from the dust of the earth. Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. But Jesus didn't come just from dust and dirt. Jesus came from heaven. More than that, though, he goes on to say he does only his Father's will in everything he did. And then he continues, and he says something very strange. After he began to heal people and do many things, he says, I have life in myself. Again, a strange mystery. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's revealing that he himself has all the power of God the Father. But unlike the stories we hear about um, various false gods on earth, there was no clashing and war in heaven. That sure seems to be setting it up, doesn't it? Two entities that have the full power of life itself. You can imagine them making lives just to throw them at each other for the purpose of destruction. But God has been at peace from all eternity past. And so this raising up of Jesus that the Father was doing throughout the course of him coming and laying down his life and raising it back up again would only lead to further peace and harmony with the Godhead and further glory of God and all of his goodness. So we see here that Jesus would go on and raise Lazarus from the dead. This miracle is one that if it was to happen in front of you, despite all the fantastic things you've seen, still would be the most amazing thing you'd ever seen in your whole life. If you saw someone four days in the grave dead, Now, the thing about being four days buried dead is that even if he was alive at the beginning, he would not be by the end. No one can survive four days in the earth. But more than that, his sisters were begging him not to do it because they didn't want to shame him by having his smell come out. By this and many other signs, we know that this was a true miracle that God had done on earth. The purpose of this miracle wasn't just that Lazarus should be raised from the dead. It wasn't just that his friends should be comforted. 
It wasn't even just that it should be revealed that, as Jesus said to Martha when she was asking him, why? Why weren't you here earlier to save him, to keep him from dying? It wasn't just to reveal that Jesus was, as he said to her before he did it, the resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection. He proved that. But it was including that. It was to show forth the glory of the Father and the Son. How that they have power over not just life, but death. See, often when we think about God, we wonder about our punishment. And in some ways, that's right. God is the judge of all things. And so it's right for us, too, when we consider our sin and our place and where we go in this life, our desire to seek him and to hold him and to have him shouldn't just be restricted by punishment. We should recognize that every good thing that exists in the world was spoken out of nothing. That's a part of the glory of God in the earth, how that he shows forth his glory by anything that's ever been created. But more than that, let's go back to the voice. Because at the very beginning, God spoke. It says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be light. And there was light. When God called Lazarus out of death and into life, he did something very similar to what he did when he said, Let there be light. When God's voice spoke from heaven and said, let there be light. And so it says, and there was light. But why? Why was there light? Why was it that light came out of darkness when God said so? Well, the reason is simple. Because the God who spoke it is called not just the father of lights, but it says in 1 John, it says, this then is the message which we have heard of him, which is another way of saying, here is the gospel. This is the message which we have heard of him. And we declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness. For you see, because there's no darkness in God, and God said, let there be light, there could be no other possible outcome than that light should shine into the void. Same is true of Lazarus being raised from the dead. The Father and the Son and the Spirit were all intimately working together for that miracle to happen. Because he was going to reveal something special and different about the Father from the dawn of time. For when he spoke to light and made it come out of darkness, it came from within him. And when Jesus spoke to Lazarus and said, come forth, nothing else could happen besides Lazarus coming forth. Because as the light that was in God came out when light was called out of darkness, so the life that was in God came out in the form of Lazarus being raised from the grave. Now, beloved, that is our hope, and we lay our eternal desires upon God in hope of his giving us eternal life, as he promises so freely. But I want us not only to concentrate on our place in this glorious picture, I want us to also concentrate on what God takes as important. Because if you are referred to as glorified, and your hope and your right desire is that you should be yourself glorious, because God made you that way. As the hymn writer sings, that the bride eyes not her garment, but views her bridegroom's face. We're not just going to be glad about our glory, but we are going to be glad about that. Just as a bride, when she's brought forward, she might be um, a little bit unsure. She might be a little bit, um, as she's walking forward, uncomfortable with being the center of the display. But certainly, she does want to be beautiful, and she does want to be proud of the glory she displays. This is that thing which God has done in us, but more than that, it's a thing which he has always been in himself. So even as the bride is beautiful, so likewise the bridegroom is to show something great and grand and glorious. And the bridegroom of our souls, beloved, is Jesus Christ. But I want to back up just a little bit before we finish off on the, the idea of God's glory as it relates to us and our sin and the world and all of existence. 
I want to think about that voice that you heard. <coughs> and then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glory and will glorify it again. There was a reaction. It said, the people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. And Jesus told them, this voice came not of me, but for your sakes. Now their description is one that should catch our ear and drive our imagination into work immediately. Because if the God from heaven speaks and someone describes his voice, we ought to know what, what's happening there. So some thought it was like thundering. We went through a number of storms this morning, and this is thunderstorm season up here in the Northeast. I'm sure if you've uh, been at home in the last month, you've heard some deep thunder rolling in the heavens. And all of us, from the youngest to the oldest to the strongest and the weakest, we know that feeling of that power that's so much greater than us as it echoes through the buildings that we're in, across the skies, and even into our very being. It shakes us, right? Because you're dealing with power beyond something you can control. Well, that's one description of it. In another place, it says in Ezekiel, and this is talking about some heavenly beings. It says in the first chapter, it says, and when they went, which is referring to these heavenly beings who came to visit Ezekiel, it says, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of an host when they stood and let down their wings. So he's just describing this one action. As though a a noise of great waters. But then he says, it reminds me of the voice of the Almighty. Many here love to go to uh, the eastern shore and to other places along the Atlantic Ocean where you can enjoy the wonderful weather, but most importantly, the ocean. There's something there that calls to many of us the deep sounds, how wide and how vast and how powerful it is. Just recently, there was a um, 35-year-old man who was an NFL quarterback, Ryan Mallett. He was back up, but he did play for the Ravens. And he was sucked out to sea by a riptide and died. Now he dove in to try to help someone else. But he being young and still, I think, well, as the 38-year-old, I, I like to think he's still in the prime of his youth and his strength, right? He was sucked out to sea by the very power of the ocean and destroyed. That noise of many waters talks again about the sound of things that are so much greater than us. When you hear something like that described. And again, in the Psalms, it says, it refers to his voice as the voice of many waters. So when God speaks, he doesn't just speak with a general tone like ours. You have to imagine, this is the God of all creation, who is a spirit, who speaks and things come into being, who speaks and things are gone and destroyed forever. He will speak one day in untidy elements. His voice is as the voice of many waters. It itself showed forth the glory of God. So as you imagine him saying back, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Please, please remember that. And lastly, what is that place where he will glorify it again? Where is the place where he will glorify it again? Well, if he has once glorified it by raising someone from the dead, what is he referring to? He's referring not to Jesus' resurrection, I don't think, because Jesus said that he would raise it up again. I lay my life down and raise it back up again. No, he's talking about something that to the Father and to the Son is most precious in his eyes. In the scripture, it says that a few things are precious in the sight of God. One of them is precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. And hearing of so many who have been either sick or recently deceased in his place does put heaviness about me for a moment. But then I remember that God has taken careful care to walk all of those who have been lost recently through the veil. Because it says of Jesus that he took hold of and now is the master and Lord of death itself. He holds the keys of death and hell. 
in his hands. So no one gets to go through that door without either his permission or his presence. For what door is opened by a jailer without the jailer being there? So I'm comforted by those whom we have recently lost and those who are on death's door even now. Remember that door is now owned by Jesus. But no, I would speak about yourselves. I would say that that other way that God is going to glorify his name is in your resurrection. And not just your final resurrection, but your immediate resurrection. When the Spirit comes and takes out that heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh, that is a matter for God's glory. It is a matter of great importance to him. In the beginning of Hebrews, it says this, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Again, that's quite a glorious description of the Godhead working together, not just to um, separate and share power, but also to have created and made all things. But then again, it says of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath by himself, what? You know the passage? What's this thing that God is describing as being so important to God that he gives a forerunner or a description saying it's, it's all, all of creation was made and then now he did this. He revealed all of God's glory through his son and then he did what? By himself purged our sins. And that's where you get to be in the story. Again, I say the Bible isn't a mirror, but when it talks about you, you should listen up. God took so important the revelation of his glory as to reveal his love by speaking from heaven. And he has revealed his glory in a very particular way. If God has purged your sins, recognize it the way that God does. That it is a revelation of the very glory of God on earth to call you back from the dead. To put life in you where there was none. To put light in your eyes where there was nothing but blindness. In 2 Peter, it says this, and I'll leave you with this. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are the revelation of the glory of God on earth. Take that as vital and important. Beloved, take it as seriously as God does, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The very glory of God has been revealed on earth in you. And I leave you with this one last thought. Abstain from fleshly lusts. For those things which war against the soul war against not just your individual soul, but the opportunity you have to do a thing that was not possible before, to show forth God's glory in the earth and the work he's doing in you. Thank you for your good attention. Appreciate the message Brother John has brought forth and desire continued interest in your prayers. Exodus chapter 20, the first two commandments that are emphasized here, it says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage. The first one is this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Second one is this, Thou shalt not make any Make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. He says, and this summarizes both the first and second. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations unto them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So there's one story in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18. I love this story. It's great for young children to hear. Thankful for the young children that we have here. But it's great for all of us. But it teaches the importance of the first and second commandment that's taught in Exodus chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the servant Elijah that God deals with and God puts on his heart to teach this lesson here. Great, great lesson. 1 Kings chapter 18. It says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. There had been a a great famine. There had been a great drought. uh, For it says above three years. And God uh, talked or impressed uh, Elijah that he was going to send rain. And in doing so, uh, Elijah is instructed to uh, create an event where God shows his glory. And it's interesting that the place where this event was to be created was referred to as Mount Carmel. Now, some folks refer to this church as Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist or just Mount Carmel. But it's interesting that this Event, this miraculous event that takes place where God shows his presence and shows his glory is referred to as on the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, enjoyed at one point looking through some of the history of the church here. And uh, one of the uh, notebooks that we ran across was like a, a big chief notebook and it was written in pencil. And they had written out about 12 or 13 different names that they were considering to name the church building here or name this location. One was Bethlehem Primitive Baptist Church. Uh, Some were old school uh, Baptist Church. It was a whole host of names. But they settled on Mount Carmel. And I can't help but think that this, this experience here where God revealed his presence in a mighty way might have had an impact upon our forefathers in choosing the name for Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church. So there had been a drought, uh, a famine in the land. Sister Perry used to tell us that occasionally when there would be a drought in the summertime, she said Preacher Thompson would call for a, uh, a prayer meeting. Uh, early on, he lived right across the street in this house over here and said he would call for a prayer meeting when they'd gone weeks or maybe a little longer without um, having rain. And every time that he came, she said he would bring his raincoat and an umbrella with him. And she said, you know, it wasn't long after there was a prayer meeting that there was the rain, the necessary rain. Well, God had told Elijah here, I'm going to send rain upon the earth and I want you to uh, meet with Ahab and I want you to tell him, I want you to tell him why they haven't had rain 
he comes on down and Ahab, I'm just going to, for time's sake, go through this. This whole chapter is really good. I'd encourage you to read all of chapter 18. It's a long chapter, but it's real good. And I'll paraphrase some of the experience right here. So Elijah was told by God to tell Ahab that there's where there had been a famine in the land, that there's going to be uh, rain, that the drought is going to end. Ahab uh, sent Obadiah before this experience with Elijah. He sent Obadiah to search out and see if there were some areas that uh, that there was some uh, some grass for the animals, that there were some areas uh, of water that the animals could drink. They'd lost no 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 doubt a lot of their animals up to this point during this three year drought. And Ahab had been looking for. Uh, Elijah and seeking Elijah because he was under the impression that it was a curse upon the land that was prompted by Elijah or one of the prophets of God. And so when Obadiah, who is searching out to find a watering place or a place of some grass, a place that they could take their animals to, to graze so that they would not die, Obadiah, who is also a servant of God, but he's under Ahab, he runs into Elijah. God arranged and blessed the two to meet. And Elijah tells him, he says, you go back to Ahab and you tell him that, uh, that there's going to be, uh, that God is going to deliver. But then he tells him, uh, he, he proposes how this is going to take place. And, and Obadiah didn't want to go back to Ahab because he thought, his life might be taken if he couldn't take Elijah with him. They'd been searching out and seeking Elijah. And so he does go back and he tells him, and uh, Ahab comes out to meet Elijah in the, the first part of the chapter here. He comes out to meet Elijah. And he, the first thing he says to Elijah when he comes to him, he says, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Are you the reason that we're not, that we are experiencing this drought right here? Abraham, uh, uh, Ahab comes to Elijah and says that. And Elijah says, it's not, it's not me that troubles Israel. It's the sins of the people that are troubling Israel. He said, it's uh, because they've not followed after the one true and living God. It's because they've sought out other gods to serve and to worship. And as a result, there is judgment that's coming upon the land. No doubt that may be the case in the land in which we live because we've forgotten to serve God. We forgot the first commandment, the second commandment. They were not to have any other gods before him, that there is but one true and living God. And so through the uh, event that's about to take place, the bottom line of this event that takes place on Mount Carmel is to remind the people and to prove to the people again that there is but one true and living God and that they're not to serve other gods and that God has all power and that God is in control. And God oftentimes works things in such a way in our life, things that we may not understand, we may not understand why. God works things in such a way that a lesson is taught to remind us that He is God, that there is but one true living God, and that we should have no other gods before Him. So, here's the lesson that 
comes. I love this little experience right here. It, uh, say little experience is a great experience. So Elijah proposes. He said, you have a God that you worship. You have a God that you serve. You have Baal. Your prophets have taught the people to worship Baal. You've had, I think it was 400 uh, prophets that were there that have taught the people to worship Baal, not the one true and living God. So he said, we're going to have a little exercise right here. And we're going to see whose God really does respond. Now, if you think about it for a minute, all the other gods that we might be have a tendency to worship. It's a God that that maybe man creates and has to build up and hold up. But the one true and living God who has all power, he doesn't need any assistance. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need anybody to hold him up, to build him up or sustain him in any way. And this event that takes place right here proves it. Great little story right here. So, uh, Elijah comes to the people. The people are this vast number of people. They're a little bit confused. And and here's how Elijah presents the question to the people. He says, how long halt ye between two opinions? He said, here's the purpose of this exercise that's going to take place, this event that's going to take place. He said, how long halt ye between two opinions? He said, if the Lord be God, then follow him. That's just the bottom line. If there is but one true and living God, if, if, uh, if, if there are no other gods, then follow him. But he says, if you're God, if Baal be God, then you make the decision and you follow him. But he says, don't halt between two opinions, following God and following Baal and going back and forth and being confused at the matter. He says, if Baal is God, you follow him. If the one true and living God is God, then you follow him. And it says the people that he tells this to, it says they answered him not a word. Hmm. I'm sure there were some of them that were thinking there is but one true and living God. I'm sure there's some others that were thinking, well, we're taught to serve and honor and worship Baal. And that's the God that we're to worship and serve. Well, Elijah says this exercise is going to prove that there is but one true and living God. Then said Elijah unto the people. I even I only remain a prophet of the Lord. Now, that's something that Elijah thought himself. He thought that he was the only one that was contending for the Lord and contending for the faith. And Elijah really thought and maybe he was in that group of folks that were right there at that time. But he felt like that he was the only one. And he felt that way for uh, upon several occasions. And the Lord revealed to him in the next chapter, he said, I've got a whole lot of folks, Elijah, that have not bowed their knee to Baal. A lot of folks you don't know about. And and I think that's a good lesson for us to be reminded that God's got a people. It's much larger than what we are or much larger than what we think it is. God's got a people out of every nation, kindred and tongue. And even though we may not know where they are, God knows where they are. And that's the main, that's the bottom line. God knows who they are and where they are. And he reminds Elijah of that later on. So Elijah says, and this is, this is the uh, event that takes place. He says, let them therefore give us two bullock, bullocks. 
and let them choose. He says, let them choose one for themselves. So Elijah says, let's take two books and then you choose which one you want so that uh, couldn't be arranged that, that it was because Elijah had done the choosing. They could choose. And he says, let's cut them into pieces and let's lay it under wood and let's put no fire under it. And I will dress the other book, the one that you did not choose. I'll dress the other one and I'll lay it on wood and I'll put no fire under it. And then he said, those of you that serve and worship Baal, then you start and call on the name of your gods. And he says, you call upon your gods, if you read it in your Bible, it's with little g. And ye call upon the name of your gods. And he says, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord and the God that answereth by fire. Let him be God. And it's interesting. All the people answered and said, it is well spoken. They, the people thought this will be a good way to determine who is the one true and living God. They'd been taught to serve Baal. They'd been taught to worship Baal. And God reveals his presence here to prove that Baal had no power and that he had all power. So Elijah proposes this exercise. He said, you take two bullets. He says, you pick which one you want. You pick the bullet and then you slay it and you place it upon the wood and upon the altar. And he says, then then I'll stand back and I'll watch and I'll wait and I'll listen. And then you, with all of your influence and all of your power and all of your might, you call upon your God. And if your God answers and rains down fire upon the altar, then I'll agree with you. We should serve your God. But he said, it's going to be revealed. I said that Elijah didn't. But he, he's, he's, he's telling them, you call upon your God and, 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 and you make all the necessary arrangements to call upon your God. And if he answers with fire, then you should serve uh, that God. But don't halt between two opinions. So it says they took the bullock that was given them. They dressed it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. And they said, O Baal, hear us. But there was no answer. And nor any that answered. It says that they started early in the morning. And they called upon Baal until noon. And it says, Baal didn't answer him. I think it's interesting the way he says it right here. It says, Baal didn't answer him. Nor did any other gods answer him. Any, any other gods that they might have. There was no god that responded when they were calling upon him to uh, come down and rain down fire. And it says that they called from morning till noon. Nobody answered. And then it says that they leaped upon the altar which was made. Maybe they thought they could get his attention a little more if they leaped upon the altar. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah, he must have had a little bit of sense of humor here. I mean... Uh, here's what it says. It says, Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud because for he is a God, little G. Elijah says, cry aloud. He is a, a God, a little G says either he's talking. Maybe he's busy in conversation with another God or someone else. Or maybe he is pursuing 
Or maybe your God is on a journey. Or he says, or maybe your God is asleep. Now, aren't you glad that your God doesn't suffer hindrances because of all those things that are mentioned right there? Your God, it, 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 he, he is not too busy to hear you because he's talking to someone else. He's, uh, you don't have to cry aloud to him. Because he knows where you are. You don't have to worry about your God being on a journey and not available. And you sure don't have to worry about your God sleeping. Your God is always there day and night to hear your prayer. For you to call upon him and he's always available. Elijah said maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's talking. uh, Maybe he's pursuing. Maybe he's sleeping. He says maybe your God has to be awakened. Maybe you need to wake him up. And it says, and they cried and they, it begins to say in verse 28, they begin to act like madmen. I mean, have you ever seen maybe on television some of these concerts and I mean, how radical that they get and maybe you've been to some where they just act like madmen? Well, that's what happens right here. It says that they were they cried aloud. It says they were up on the altar. They were running around on the altar. They were cutting themselves with, with knives and lancets till blood gushed out upon them. Maybe they thought that by all of this activity that they could get the attention of their God. And they did this from morning till noon till evening, till midday was passed. And it says it came to pass when midday was passed and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice it says that their God did not respond that there was no voice nor did any God answer nor did any God regard them there was no response so keep in mind that their efforts to call upon their God so Elijah says to the people Come near, come a little bit closer. You're going to see the power of the one true and living God. Come a little bit closer. And all the people came near unto him. Now these are people that are halting between two opinions. Is there one true and living God? Is there Baal? I'm sure that there were some that were totally worshiping Baal. I'm sure that there were some that were probably considering the one true and living God. He says, I want you to all come up here just a little bit closer. It says, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob and uh, of Israel. And with the 12 stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Well, first of all, you know that stones don't typically burn. But he's building an altar with these 12 stones. It says, and he built the altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. He dug a trench around the altar. I remember when I first moved to Maryland from West Texas that uh, uh, I planted a, a big, uh, it's big for me, vegetable garden uh, up here off of 136 where I was living out in the country. Planted a bunch of tomato plants. I don't even really like tomato plants, but I like to grow them. I like to give them away. 
planted all these large tomato plants, and I dug a trench around each one of them. And Brother Frank Rogers came up, and you remember Brother Frank and Sister Elsie, and well, actually, it's Brother Frank and his second or third wife before Sister Elsie, uh, Sister Wilma. And he said, what are all those circles around the tomato plants? And I told him, I said, well, that's to water them. That's to, to water. He says, you know what? You're not going to have to do that here. And I couldn't comprehend that, that we would get enough rain that you don't have to water the, the vegetables and had these great big trenches around them. Well, that's what Elijah's doing right here. He puts a big trench around this altar. And then he says... It says, fill four barrels with water and pour it, upon the burnt pour it upon the burnt sacrifice and upon the wood. Now, if you're going to try to start a fire, uh, you don't generally use water to do it. He said, you take four barrels of water and you pour it upon the altar. And he calls the people to come up a little bit closer and watch. And he says, now go get four more barrels. And you pour it upon the altar and it pours down and runs off down into the trench. And then he says, I want you to do it a third time. Now, I'm sure those people that are watching are thinking, this is not going to work. You've got an altar here. You've got built with stones. And then you're pouring water on top of it. To, and then you're going to call down from your God to try to rain fire down and consume this altar. This is just not going to work. And it says the water ran down about the altar. That's 12 barrels of water. And, and it filled up the trench also with water. So the trench around the altar was full of water. And it came to pass at the evening of the sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God, he's, he's calling unto the Lord, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me this day. He says, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast, that they, that thou hast turned their, their heart back again. Elijah says, God, I want you to uh, honor your word and reveal yourself so that these people may know that there is but one true and living God. And these people will not be halting between two opinions and be confused about who the one true and living God is. And here's what happens. He says, hear me, O God, that this people may know that thou art the Lord thy God. And it says, and the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the wood sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It consumed the stones and the dust. And it says it even licked up the water that was in the trenches. Now, can you imagine if you'd been watching this event all day and you'd been there all day and you'd witnessed the other folks calling, the other prophets calling upon their God and there was no response whatsoever. And then you see this tremendous experience about this altar with the sacrifice and the altar of stones and, and the water that's been poured upon it and the water that's all around it. And then all of a sudden when 
The, when the servant of God, Elijah, calls upon the Lord, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell, it consumed the burnt sacrifice, it consumed the wood, the stones, the dust, and it says it even licked up the water that was in the trenches. God revealed himself in such a way that there was no doubt to those that were gathered around. There was no doubt to those that were looking on. There was no doubt with those that were in his presence that there is but one true and living God. And that they should not serve any other gods. We may see some miraculous events in our lifetime. We may have already experienced them. That will remind us that there is but one true and living God. And that we should have no other gods before him or serve him. And then it says, and all the people when they saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And it comes on down and it tells them that they begin after that as they begin to repent and acknowledge that there is but one true and living God and attempt to serve the one true and living God. It says, I hear the sound of rain. If you've been in a drought, that's probably uh, a really good sound to hear. It says, I hear the sound of rain. It goes on down. It says there was a little cloud looked about like the size of a man's hand at a far distance. And yet God took that and watered the land. But the people were reminded that there is one true and living God and that we don't serve any other gods before him. Sometimes in our life, other things creep in our life that that we don't uh, think take the place of God. We need to be reminded that there is one true and living God and that that takes priority and preeminence over everything else. And everything else is a far second to the one true and living God. Elijah was blessed of God to witness and be a part of an experience that reminded people that there is but one true and living God.